Welcome to Fine Art Fiona, a podcast which shares my conversations with the many artists, curators and collectors I meet on my art travels who, like me, have a passion for art. My name is Fiona McIntosh. Today I'm chatting with Wendy Murray, visual artist and activist whose drawing and printmaking practice is based out of studios in Sydney and in Los Angeles. Our conversation takes place across Gadigal and Camaragal lands, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Wendy's art is informed by her commitment to street art, graffiti art and older style printmaking technology. Her work captures an urban life and the pressing social and political issues of the day she sees around her. She has a profound understanding of the power that image and text can play in the public domain. Wendy has recently returned to Sydney from a brief stint back in LA, her time there interrupted by the international COVID crisis. She hopes to get back there soon to continue where she left off. Hi, Wendy. Welcome to Fine Art Fiona. Thanks so much for joining me. While it's great to have you back in Sydney, I appreciate there is some disappointment for you at not being able to continue what you set out to do in LA. So maybe let's start there. Why LA? What took you there? And, you know, what were you seeking there? Oh, hi, Fiona. Yeah, thanks. Um, Los Angeles, far out. When I moved to Los Angeles in 2019, my plan was to um, screen print posters and I'd set up a... Um, in 2018, I'd set up a screen print um, studio in a garage, a little garage in Silver Lake I'm renting there. I had set out in Los Angeles to screen print posters, to make posters, to be a poster maker. And there's such a rich history of poster making and screen printing, silk screen printing it used to be called, or seriography in um, the US, um, in Los Angeles particularly with... Uh, self-help graphics there. So self-help graphics is a community print studio, a Chicano print studio in East Los Angeles. And they came to my attention um, a few years ago when I found out that um, a couple of the Redback Graphics poster makers had gone over and made some posters at the self-help graphics. And so in 2017, when I went to Los Angeles, I went to Southout Graphics and I actually met one of the printers, um, Oscar Duardo, who had worked with the Australian poster makers. And um, during that visit, I met Dewey Tafoya, who's my age, my generation of, of screen printer. And, um, and that sort of began, I guess, and touches on why I love Los Angeles so much. It's the people. And then there's also an institution there called um, the Centre for the Study of Political Graphics, and they have over 90,000 posters, political, social posters from all around the world. And that um, I've been researching that space since 2016. So that's a really inspiring space and is kind of, what should we say, like my foundation of my research in the US. And then I, I look through these posters, I find these poster artists or print collectives and go out and then write to them, meet them, and then this sort of unravels the sort of history of, especially Los Angeles and also up that whole West Coast, actually, as far north as Portland. So mm-hmm. Earl Newman's up there, and he's a fantastic illustrator, artist, and poster maker who's still at, he actually, I don't know if he's making posters right now, but he had his 92nd birthday. Um, and oh, wow. Printing right up until then. He's got a studio outside of Portland. And is it that longevity, which in a way probably means that the tradition of 
poster-making and political poster-making particularly is entrenched. And is it that that excites you about opportunities and working in It does LA? because I get, to, I get to meet and work with my hero. Like, oh, wow, well, yeah, you know, that's always fantastic. Like meeting, I mean, I don't know how else to do this gig because when you're operating as a as I was as a street artist and poster maker in Sydney, I was sort of an isolated entity, you know, Mm -hmm. and what's amazing about the US is I can see those artists and visit those artists like Emic and um, Robbie Connell um, and see how they operate and Obey, Shepard Ferry, you know, and their strategies for dissemination and um, distribution of posters, which Mm -hmm. is quite different to Sydney because... Here, when I put posters up on the street, I might put, say, 25 to 30 up a week and I'd get quite good coverage in a city like Sydney. Like, reasonable, you know. A city like Los Angeles, how do you even tackle a city of that size Mm. as an independent poster maker? And so it was really interesting looking at the strategies of those poster makers and, and sort of figuring out how I might, if I was to continue making posters, apply that to my practice there is a strong history, though, of political poster printmaking here in Australia. You mentioned Redback Graphics before and Alison Alder. But, you know, that political messaging around Indigenous rights, women's yes. rights, environmental action, or, you know, the very direct news or announcements, perhaps not so political, because I'm thinking, you know, posters taped to street lamps each week advertising, say, a band's next gig. Um are there other artists or contemporary artists working alongside you or ones coming through here in Australia who are reinvigorating this sort of tradition of public messaging? Or do you think the way people engage with social media has sort of taken over? I think social media has diluted it but um, in some ways. But, I mean, I think of Tropo Print Studio down in Melbourne. They are doing some great work. I think the differences between now and then, and it's got to do with real estate and um, government funding is that you just need space and there's a lot of equipment involved and um, it's just I think the cost in Sydney makes it prohibitive. It's sort of almost like a, um, a community service that you're looking to offer, you know, getting to the nub of an issue, finding the most direct and overt way in which to herald it through text and imagery. But what is it about the pasting up of a printed poster in a public space that speaks to us so directly. In the in an age of bombardment of news, you know, people on their phones as they sit on the bus or walk down the street, you know, what is it about I the poster? I think it's the, I try and conjure up this feeling that first, you know, that I first felt or that I, I haven't felt in a while because I haven't seen turned a street corner or walked down an alleyway and been you know, confronted by a poster that just knocks your socks off, by a message that just really makes you stop in your tracks and think. And that can't happen on social media in the same way. You know, you can't catch people off guard in the same way. And sometimes it's the scale of the poster or the colours of the poster or the placement of the poster that can really engage people in a way that I just don't think social media can. And especially... The majority of my posters, especially Minigraph's posters, her posters were anonymous on the street. So -hmm. there's something about not claiming authorship and allowing the viewer to just see the poster for what it is or read it for what it is and and interpret it based on their history or social, you know, 
sort of understanding. And so, I, yeah, I really, I like the ambiguity of that. And I, I just, I think there's something about these things being in physical space and, and the surprise or stumbling across them, which mm -hmm. really adds to their communication abilities. I'd like to talk about Minigraph and for you to introduce her in a minute, but maybe if we just have a bit of a chat about um, what it is that is arresting in a poster and your approach to typography, to colour, to placement, to actually hone that messaging because a lot of the, the typography that you use, I mean, I think of as nostalgic, you know, it's sort of there's an old-fashioned quality to it. They, they do feel like they come from another era, I guess we could call it an analogue era. And the fact that they are, you know, you talked about 20 posters or 30 posters, that that is a very limited sort of run. I mean, digital reproductions now extend into tens of thousands with the press of a button. So, so, so that retro nostalgic approach to your poster making also probably harks back to the original sort of tradition. But, but how did you get into that? And, and what is, um, what is it about that history that um, uh, is, you know, is still there and is still potent? Well, I guess for me, the it's the investigation into the production of the posters is um, visible in my work. So um, it's the say the the process. So to quickly run you through the process of how I might how I make a poster is I might see a newspaper article like let's look at at the moment, a current thing today on the, what are we, 23rd of July, 2021. Apparently. Is the, mm. is the, um, the support by the government of uh, construction industries compared to, say, the arts. So I had this idea. I heard, you know, they've been talking about it on the ABC and the construction industry is applying pressure to the government to get back to work. And I'm thinking, well, the arts have been out of, some of the people in the arts have been out of work since frickin' March last year, right? Yep. So look at that comparison. So a poster comes from that simple idea and that funny feeling I get in my tummy and I get a little bit angry and I'm like, okay, well, you know, don't get angry, get even. So that's like the birth of a poster idea. And then mm -hmm. so I look at, say, my daily drawings and see is there something that I can draw from that or draw up something, look at media, and I start distilling down image and text that respond to that idea. So this idea of a broken down arts billboard sort of falling apart on one side of the page and then a construction, cons I'm making this poster as I talk to you, but yeah. <laughs> construction. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> construction billboard, you know, bright lights, you know, being supported physically by a bunch of blokes in construction gear by the New South Wales government at the bottom holding this construction up or constructing yeah. it. You know, and then, then the actual, so I get the idea and I don't use a computer, so I'm pretty much analogue. I use um, Letraset, which is an old um, pre-computer system for um, setting typography. So it's mm -hmm. a transfer, letter transfer system. So mm -hmm. I have a lot of what would be now called vintage Letraset, I guess. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. And I manually, I set the type... Um, do a draft drawing of what the poster might look like and then I choose the fonts and just set the letter set without making a mock-up. I don't rule up. I worked with a typographer, actually, and so I'd just set construction in one type face and then I'd respond to it with another and then I'd drop the drawings in. The looseness of it, I think, probably conjures some of that, um, that analogue feeling, that nostalgic and feeling. Mm. Yeah, mm. and... 
you know, because back in the day, like, things would get through that weren't perfect, right? The kerning wasn't perfect. There's an immediacy in the posters that I make. I set myself these parameters and rules for not Mm. labouring over these posters, for actually just Mm. going in and getting the message on the street as soon as possible. As quickly as possible, absolutely. I'm interested in typography. I'm interested in fonts, typography, and the different sorts of um, uh, emotions or different, you know, how it can evoke different sorts of messaging. You know, some are more formal, some are obviously looser, some free forms, some are fairly rigid, serif, sans serif, all of that sort of stuff. And that that history is fascinating. So do you delve into that when you just talk through creating a poster in your head? Are you thinking a certain font might be better than another or? Yeah, yeah. It's um, trained as a graphic designer. That was my first right. um, tertiary training, formal training. Right. And I did four years at a Bauhaus style um, polytechnic, which is similar to the Australian TAFE system in New mm-hmm. Zealand. It was fantastic, called Wellington Polytechnic. And Yes, I do do that. I don't do it so much when I'm thinking of the concept, but when I come mm-hmm. to setting typography, I'm in that zone. And so what I do is pull out my drawers of set and I'm looking, I'm doing exactly how you described it, I'm looking for an emotion. So if it's construction rules, I'm thinking, okay, what's the rhythm of construction rules? Am I yelling construction and then saying rules or am I saying construction and yelling rules? Mm-hmm. And I'd probably do it that way. So then I'm like, okay, I need a con- word. I'm looking for construction. It needs to be solid, sans serif, mm-hmm. sort of standing its ground. But I've got to then allow rules to be overpowering and overbearing. And that determines my, the, that's determined by what letter set I have. Because I only have a limited amount of letter set. They don't make yeah. it anymore. Yeah. So if I can find something that's a bit wishy-washy construction and then the rules... I can't find anything that suits and I have to use a construction typeface with the rules and then find something else for construction because I've only got this finite number of type sheets in front of me. And Mm. those are the parameters I've set myself, which I think works really well for me as an artist. Mm -hmm. Like I respond really well to type parameters. I just Mm -hmm. make it work, you know. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of artists, it's about being resourceful. It's about using what's to hand and, and how you can make the most of what's actually there. And I just... Love the physicality of it. I don't really mm-hmm. like, I'm not the type of artist that likes to sit on the computer making up like Photoshop mm-hmm. constructions, you know. I like to feel, I get a sense of if a poster's working as soon as I've set that letter set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's often I get it wrong or it's not perfect, but I, it's like drawing. I believe that if I just make that poster and get it out and put it on the street, I just go through that whole poster process. Mm-hmm. It just gets like if it, that's not a great poster, oh, well, that's one less shitty poster out of out of the mm. way I can just move on and make a great one next so obviously there are certain things that are really important to you in terms of big issues you know whether they be global issues or you know local like the construction rules generally what sort of messages are you trying to get across what what motivates you there's not one particular thing I guess it's what's going on in my life at the moment so a big a big issue while I was in Los Angeles and um, in lockdown there earlier this year was climate change. It was just something I really felt was um, really sort of visible to me and um, talking to another artist, Kay Brown, fantastic um, Los Angeles activist and printmaker. So we have begun a series. We've made two posters on climate change 
And so one addresses um, what goes into a hamburger, <laughs> so the resources required to make yep. a hamburger patty. And then the other one is about um, just the global warming, the, the sort of greater idea. And the sort of byline we created was every little change counts because we're both sitting there going, how do we? It's big industry who's really in charge of this in the government, but what can we mm. do as individuals? And mm. we felt paralysed. I mean, I still feel paralysed. What do you do about climate change? Mm. I mean, I, mm. you know, I've got my keep cup and I have short showers mm. and, you know, mm. and... Um, and so we came up with this sort of byline that every little change counts. And so that made us feel empowered to be like, okay, if we make this poster and we put it up, we're making change. And we got some nice, um, took some nice photographs of it and put those on social media as well and used that as a platform. So we only had printed 100 of those posters. Do you get responses from people? Yeah, that's an interesting question actually because, <laughs> you know, back in the day I used to get responses on the posters so say I'd do a poster around, put 20 posters up around the, you know, Darlinghurst, Surrey Hills, Redfern area. Then a few days later I'd walk around the same, you know, just to see if the posters were still up and see what was going on. And, and people might have, like, put a Sharpie comment on the poster or responded to it. A graph writer might have got up over it or, or spot-jocked me and got up beside me. Um, you know, I'd see the responses. Now, because of – I noticed this happen in – probably around 2016 it changed and the responses started to happen on social media instead of in the physical space. So I'd have to to get, because my posters are anonymous, to, yeah. to get, to pick a response. I'd have to spend hours to find a response. I'd have to spend hours trawling, the, on the, having a look on Instagram at hashtags and neighbourhoods. And it used to be, like, say you'd look at the hashtag Surrey Hills Back in the late, like early Instagram, so the early teens, like 2012, 2013, you'd get photos of street art and sort of interesting things around the neighbourhood. And by 2016, 17, it became photos of people's meals and their new outfits. Yeah. And so yeah. the whole thing changed. So it became harder to find, to pick up a response. And as opposed to make it, like, I choose for it to be anonymous, but I do really like to see what sort of feedback I get. Like, I really like that feedback, be it positive or negative, constructive, whatever. It just really motivates me to keep going because mm. it's such an isolated sport, you know? Mm. So I guess one thing is that you talk about very highly urbanised inner city sort of areas, which, you know, there are certain characteristics, I guess, collective characteristics of the demographies there, you know, as you see in... Um, you know, elections, local or state or whatever. Do, do you put up posters in areas where you where you might assume or uh, have a sense that politically they wouldn't be appreciated, or you know, it's a much neater sort of more suburban sort of setup where the posters would stand. There's not so much visual sort of detritus, so you know, the posters would stand out. Uh, incredibly. Do, do you play with that? I do. And I just, you just maybe reminded me of um, not so much the suburbs, like outer suburbs of Sydney, so much. There's not so much the public infrastructure for me to put posters on. So I have certain rules right. about what I paste up on. And so right. some new suburbs, like Mooney Ponds and areas like that out there, there isn't the infrastructure. So there's, there are not the sort of um, poles or the, you know, above ground infrastructure for me to put posters on. So it's a lot more challenging. But I have put posters up in, you know, rural 
New South Wales and oh, yeah. rural mm-hmm. Australia. And mm-hmm. it reminded, I just, you saying that reminded me of the only time I've actually been really scared putting up posters was in Swan Hill. And I put up some posters. In Victoria. I, yes. And I have a sort of tradition to put up posters um, on Australia Day questioning why we celebrate Australia Day. Mm-hmm. And I've done this mm-hmm. for a few years. And that particular year I was putting up the sorry posters and the mm-hmm. sort of sorry, not sorry series that I'd done. And I think it was 2014, maybe, 2013. And I was in Swan Hill putting them up in this alleyway. There were these great, this little alleyway in downtown Swan Hill. It had these recessed white sections on a brick wall in the alleyway. Mm-hmm. And I thought they're perfect. Perfect. Can, oh, yeah, perfect. Posters. Perfect. So I, I think there was four of them or six of them. So I, I put them up and I was at the last one and I heard someone scream down the alleyway, Oi, what are you doing? And a man's voice. It was late at night on, I think the day before Australia, I think it was a Thursday night. I can't quite remember. And he said, What are you doing? And I first I thought it was a policeman and I froze and it was a group of guys. And I just, right. I was on my own. I was quite a ways away from where I was staying on foot and they started coming down the alleyway and I freaked out. <laughs> and I, I did get, I had just luckily put up the last poster and I just ran for my life. Gosh. <laughs> I was so scared. Like I just didn't want to be cr- confronted by a drunk, you know, it was about 10.30, yeah, on a weekday night in a small country uh, town and I felt yeah. more threatened than I've ever felt in an inner city. No, that's interesting. Yeah. It, so it is subversive, you know, putting things up like that. I imagine it's illegal, uh, but there's a, you know, there's, it, it is subversive. And and that probably also goes back to your um, your time as minigraph, as, as a street artist. So posters are one thing, putting them on the street, but actually using the street as your um, canvas really mm. and working as a, as a street artist. Do you want to talk, introduce us to minigraph and... And chat a bit about her career. Yeah, she operated um, from around about, I can't quite pinpoint when she started out, but early, to around about 2002, maybe late 2002, um, to 2000, October 2017. So she operated in mostly the inner city of Sydney, um, but all around the country actually, and started out doing stencils and uh, mostly two-colour Small stencils, that's why she got the name Mini. And, right. Um, yeah. And so just to describe, these are stencils that you what you spray painted onto curbing and guttering little that's right. figures yeah, so using, it, really using an actual stencil as opposed to something, a poster that you stick that's on. That's right. So that was Minigraph's work right up until 2007, 2008, was all hand-cut stencils with aerosol spray paint and mostly two-colour, single-colour, two-colour, sometimes three-colour, not often. Tricky to get up with a three-colour stencil on the street. It probably takes a bit too long. Yeah, that's right. So two-colour. So the first sort of, I guess, the first series that got noticed, I suppose, that I have like a Sydney Morning Herald article still of minigraphs is in 2003, I think it was, um, where she did a series of stencils in the gutter, little boats in the gutters. I I remember them. (laughs) So some people do, like a friend of my current partner. I remember them. We were Mm. out for dinner and I said I used to do street art around, you know, all around the inner city, Darlinghurst. He said, so kind of like those little gutter boats that were in the 
remembers that? How do people remember those? Because it's a potent image and you look at it and you think little boats in a gutter, what does that mean? And then you realise you're talking about the water that drains into the stormwater and where it ends up. When where it ends up, and I mean, and now councils have that signage, you know, in a far more sort of verbose and inelegant way. Yes. Uh, on top of all drains. Yes. You know, to ask people to stop and consider. Yeah, which is fantastic that they've got that initiative going on. But the thing I loved about that, uh, I found that article before I moved to the states when I was cleaning up my archives. And what I love about it the most is I interviewed a local curator. Um, at one of the local galleries there, and she knew me, knew Minigraph, and didn't disclose who I was and said the artist wants to remain anonymous. And that kind of anonymity and protection by my community is a really important aspect of what Minigraph did, and that lack of anonymity towards the end because of social media and this kind of idea of street art fame or, I don't know, it changed. And I think... and. I, I really enjoyed that period of time when the community protected my work and my yeah. identity and it got really difficult towards the end to maintain a practice, an anonymous practice, um, with the advent of social media. And mm. a lot of people didn't understand that the reason I would put on a wig, put on an out, you know, step into my mini-graph character was to protect my anonymity and to mm-hmm. provide me with the creative freedom to say what I need to say on the street without, um, you know, my house being egged or getting, getting, yeah. um, you know, getting... I, I, I just had, it allowed me this ability to, to say what I felt or what I could mm. see happening in the community um, in an anonymous way. And so losing that towards the end um, was the reason why. I wrapped up mini graphs. She just couldn't. Mm-hmm. It just became too difficult to mm-hmm. predict that. I, I guess people listening to this will probably think of Banksy and, you know, the, the, the fascination with this artist who is essentially anonymous um, but has also, you know, worked out a way to monetize what he or she is able to do. Um, yeah, so, you know, you're... Do you know Do you know more about Banksy, I guess, than the rest of us? <laughs> Maybe. Ah, okay. <laughs> but, so um, but you all protect each other then in that that's way. That's right. I mean, there is okay. an unwritten rule. I mean, that's the thing about that graffiti and street art culture is that folks do look after each other in that. It's, it's when it's penetrated by the outside world or picked up by the outside world that it becomes um, challenging. And I always felt very supported and protected by the local graffiti um, writers in Sydney and I really respected what they do and um, also the local street artist community as well. And Mm. I think, you know, Banksy, it's fantastic that he figured out how to monetize his work. I could never do that anonymous. Mm. I couldn't figure out how to do that. You've had a few residencies um, which are, you know, I imagine fantastic ways to give you time and space to think and and um, push uh, your own practice. But one that sort of ties in, I gather, with Minigraph is the one at the University of Sydney as the first printer in residence. And then from that uh, came a book. Do you want to talk a little bit about how, you know, the, the street artist Minigraph 
how that became an impetus for something like the printer in residence at the University of Sydney, which then actually also becomes um, a special, in a way, a special art book. Mm. So that um, came about, it was the genius of Kurt Iverson, actually, the Associate Professor of Urban Geography at Sydney Uni. I've known Kurt since the May, Mays Lane days. And um, Minigraph had just wrapped up and her last poster series was Sydney, we, it opened with Sydney, We Need to Talk. And it was about breaking up, you know, that dreaded conversation you have when you're breaking up with someone. So the first poster was Sydney, We Need to Talk. The second one was... Sydney, we need to talk. I, Sydney, I feel like we're in different places. And um, and thus I rolled, you know, Minigraph rolled out a series, I think, of about four of them. But and that was to do with redevelopment, yeah. urbanisation, loss yeah. of public space, green space, that sort of stuff. So so highly political. So the Sydney, we need to talk series were actually physical, char- like characters, set characters. So mm-hmm. um, the printer-in-residence opportunity came up and Kurt suggested that this group that I've been involved with for about six months previous to that called the Sydney Urban Crew, mostly Sydney University academics. I'm the only artist in the crew at the moment. and uh, An academic in, in, in your own right? Oh, I guess. Art academic? Yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, but it's pretty intimidating sitting in a room full of uh, urban geography professors and town planners. and Anyway, um, so we are all really interested and vested in the city. And so every Tuesday we get together for an hour and we present our ideas to each other. And so Kurt saw Minigraph's poster series and said, well, this could be a great, and the residency, this could be a great way to pull together some of our ideas. So we all wrote some essays and um, we called the journal, which is now we're in the midst of making a volume two. So we produced volume one as part of that residency. So it was a collection of essays and my daily drawing illustrations and then a series of posters. So that residency was fantastic. It was an eight-week residency, had access to letterpress um, facilities there at the library and um, made that whole suite of work mm-hmm. from that. So, yeah, it was fantastic. Sydney, We Need to Talk, Volume 1, and we're in the produ- production of Sydney, We Need to Talk, Volume 2. And as a group, what is it your looking to do? What do you, when you get together, what are you discussing? We're, it's a combination. So we talk about our papers, like what where everyone's at with writing um, and book publication. I presented just before we went into lockdown here in Sydney, I prevent, presented my daily drawings from my recent time mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, just demonstrating the way how, how the city had changed through my drawings mm-hmm. and how I responded to the city um, through my drawings. So it's about spaces that people enjoy will enjoy living in. Like how does how yep. do we exist in a space and feel yep. comfortable and feel you know when I was in connected connected and yeah that sense of community. Do you get traction with the powers that be at sort of a local level, local government level, or state government level? I have with some of my posters. Um, That's good. Yeah, yeah, I have, and there are ways through through other ways through my work. So Kurt. Um, Iverson, um, Cameron McAuliffe, myself and Mystery, a fantastic, um, Matthew Pete, fantastic artist and um, graph writer, we actually won the tender to provide the City of Sydney with amendments to their graffiti management policy. Mm-hmm. So teaming up, us as, you know, me as a street artist and, and Mystery as a graph writer, teaming up with academics has been really beneficial to kind of see, like, look at policy and see what that is and why it is. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so seeing that different perspective and how 
big that mechanism is, you know. But that's also encouraging for us to know that government is embracing different voices and different approaches. But there's a difference between an acknowledgement of different voices and then acting on those. So, for example, that that particular report could have, if I was to be cynical, it could have been commissioned as a mechanism for the council to be seen as making a difference. Mm-hmm. We made recommendations. Probably I'd have to I'd have to look again because I've been a bit out of the loop the last few years, mm-hmm. but um, two of those recommendations have been implemented, I think, to date. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think we made a list it's, of 18 recommendations. Right. It, it, you know, it's the long game, but it puts you, it puts you at the table and to get a seat at the table is a very good first step. You know, at some point we have to be optimistic. Yes. Let's let's maybe move on to, you've mentioned your daily drawings a couple of times and it can sort of loop back, I guess, to um, your time in LA. But something that I've always enjoyed about artists, discussions with artists and and around their work is is their powers of observation and and what it is to really stop, slow down and look at life around you. The rest of us might just keep going, ignore or just choose not to see. But but you have beautiful powers of observations that come through in the lovely daily drawings of life around you. How did they come about? Because you've been doing them for quite a while now. I have. I've been doing them since 2010, so... Coming up, yeah, 11, 11 and a half years. And it's quite a discipline, I, I imagine, committing to a suite of daily drawings, as in one a day. Yes, and I don't, look, the name daily drawing came from the fact that this sort of parameters, again, like my poster making, I set myself parameters. So that drawing needs to be started and finished within the same day. And I tend to only, I mean, especially in the early days when I was, I would apply the discipline of the daily drawing, actually drawing daily while I was on residencies or while I was researching for a project. So I'd love to say that I've been drawing a drawing a day since 2010, but it's impossible. It's Mm. really, for me, it's impossible to have a life and do a drawing every single Mm. day (laughs) because the drawings take anything from one and a half to four four or five hours, you know, so. But even the title suggests this is just a glimpse of a moment in a day. That's right. Which is a lovely, you know, which is lovely. So you're excused for not having done one every day since 2010. (laughs) Yes, I I mean, I'd love to. But it's such a great, it's so great having that discipline there. The daily drawing just keeps me in the discipline of drawing. So whenever I want to make something, I can just draw. I can, I can. You know, and artists can relate to this. Like if you haven't drawn for a while, you're a bit rusty and yep. what you visualise in your head doesn't translate through the pen or pencil. And so that daily drawing practice has me so that I can sit in front of you. I could sit, if we were doing this face-to-face fee, which would be amazing, I could just sit there and I would have been able Sooner. to draw that construction poster for you in front of you yep. now, you know? Yeah. So so you talked about being in LA for, and at one point feeling isolated, you know, shut down with COVID, you know, in some cookie-cutter sort of apartment high-rise. Was something like the daily drawings, uh, something that actually, and the discipline of that, and in a way the optimism of 
of embracing life around you. Was that something that kept you going? Oh, yeah, incredibly so. That whole sort of four-month period of being in Los Angeles and then doing hotel quarantine, it was the daily drawing was pretty much the only thing I could do during the day. I mean, we all know that feeling now Mm. of lockdown and this sort of, it's really hard to explain that sort of paralysing effect of it. I set the parameters for myself to have uploaded on social, on Instagram, the drawing from the day before by eight o'clock in the morning. So I'd do the drawing. So I gave myself a whole day to do the drawing so that I could, and then, um, so I could sort of do it whenever I felt like I was ready to kind of get out there and get a photo. And the other thing that changed with um, COVID was I normally draw plein air. So I would go out Mm -hmm. onto the street and sit in the street for two hours. I didn't feel comfortable doing that in Los Angeles this time. Mm -hmm because you're so yeah. focused on your drawing and people would come up and talk to you. And, mm-hmm. you know, back in 2015, that was fantastic. I'd make new friends in the neighbourhood, but mm-hmm. it just wasn't something I was interested in doing And um, during COVID. So I would go out and get a photograph, explore my neighbourhood, get a photograph, and then draw from that photograph. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then putting it on social media, and this is when social media was my friend, is getting the interaction and the feedback from folks Mm-hmm. was massively uplifting. And then there's this lovely project. You just mentioned you're publishing a book of the drawings. So when, you know, are you self-publishing? Is somebody else picked it up? Are you? I'm self-publishing. I found that, that this is my sixth book and I find right. that self-publishing works really well for me. I enjoy um, being a part of all the process. I really enjoy the commissioning, the designer process, um, the printing process. And it's, it, I imagine, will just be a wonderful um visual moment, capturing a visual moment of a pretty tough and difficult time. Yes, it is. And I particularly love printed books and um, postcards and and um, I just love holding on, capturing that moment in time and having it physically available, you know. Yep. And that, that period in Los Angeles, sure, it happened on Instagram, but, I mean, MySpace doesn't exist anymore. What if I built it yep. on MySpace? Where would it go? Yep. So yep. it's just really yep. nice having that physical record. Good luck with the book and good luck with the adventures getting to and the logistics of, you know, leaving Australia, getting to LA and then coming back again. I mean, in, these, in this day and age, that's no mean feat. I admire your commitment. Thanks, Fiona. It's been really great to catch up again. Lovely to see you. Thanks, Wendy. Such an interesting artist with so many self-generated projects on the go. You can find the links for Wendy Murray and what she's up to on our show notes. And for information on other episodes, go to our Instagram page, Fine Art Fiona. Conversations on the Fine Art Fiona podcast are created by Fiona McIntosh and produced by Simon Grant. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>